Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Fedscon for October 3rd, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, exciting show tonight. We've got an international political show tonight here in about 20 minutes. Uh, our good friend been on the show for this will make his third or fourth appearance. Evan Scrimshaw is going to join us. He's going to talk about both the recent Canadian and German elections, and we're also talking to about him some you know some domestic uh, elections coming as well. Uh, but until then, we've got a host of things to discuss. And the first one, even though it may not be the most important thing going on, it is quite interesting. It's been the terrible week that. South Dakota Governor Christy Noem had. Um, one report is far more verified, so we're going to start there and probably spend more time on it because um, it probably matters for in the scheme of things. And that was that several months ago, Christy Noem's daughter took the real estate appraisal test in South Dakota. She she failed the exam, which about one third of makers in South Dakota fail. So it's not like you know it's one percent; it's thirty three percent roughly. She fails the exam, but here's the issue: Governor Nome calls the person that's the head licensures in South Dakota for the you know the real estate exam, and really leans on them to the point where her daughter apparently passed and is now. Licensed. I'll say she's licensed. I won't say she passed. Um, there's a lot of questions being asked if Christy Nome abused her office. Uh, Catherine, your thoughts on what you know about this so far? Well, I don't know very much about it, but you know, I I think uh, you know it it makes me angry, and I and it and it's wrong. But I think this is the kind of thing that um, a lot of American voters kind of expect elected officials to do. So I'm not sure that it it um will hurt her in, you know, the scheme of things. Uh I I just it's I mean it's terrible and it shouldn't happen, but I think that it's it's just one of those things that powerful people seem to be able to do. Yes. Tim, um, you know, I sent you the reports as well uh, about what the governor had done with her, you know, power in the state, um, a pretty small state where uh, probably the governor's office has even more sway than much larger state. Uh, what's your take on this? Well, I mean, Quite obviously, she did it. I don't believe the Associated Press got their stories wrong. Plus, I've seen a couple of stories about the same thing on television. There's no doubt that she called uh, 
the woman in charge of this process, that she had her in her office, that she told her maybe it was time for her to retire. And the next thing you know, her daughter, uh, the Cation, which had been rejected, was uh, suddenly okayed. Uh, Nome denies everything, of course, and uh, that seems to be the way nowadays in, in, in this day and age. You, you, you seem to be able to do anything and get away with it with no penalties from the court system, the authorities, the voters, if you're the right people. And, of course, her being who she is, well, I guess some people are above the law, aren't they? Yes. Um, now, looking at her, um, she's in her second term, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know South Dakota political law in and out. I don't know if you're term limited to terms. Uh, but both Senate seats are held by Republicans. The House seat, which she once held, is held by Republicans. So unless you have to primary somebody, um, as far as South Dakota office, she's kind of in, in the last term. Um, so, you know, politically, it's going to be hard for, I guess, to see where it might impact her at the ballot box if she doesn't seek an election in South Dakota again. Now, there's more that we'll get to in a minute. Um, but later in the week, there was another report. Now, it was under a publication I had never heard of. I saw it on Twitter, which, of course, if it's on social media, therefore you need to start reading laterally and, and checking more sources. But I, you know, went to the actual article, looked at the publication. The publication leans conservative, um, which that doesn't make it a good or bad source on its face. But it was talking about how her and one of Donald's former advisors, Corey Lewandowski, um, had had more than a bit relationship, we'll say. Um, she denied that. I think he denied that. But later in the week, she severed ties, um, the governor's office with Corey Lewandowski, you know, where there would be no thoughts of any improprieties. Now, my question is, why did you have so, you know, such a, you know, a political business relationship with him if she's not running for re-election to where these other rumors could be reported in this story. Um, Catherine, I sent y'all that one as well. What was your take when you read it? I, I mean, of course she's going to deny it. Everybody's going to deny it. And what difference does it make? If she's not running again, I'm, I'm checking now to see what the rules are. Um, it's two-term limit. Or two consecutive. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I don't really care, I guess is the bottom line. I don't care about stuff like that. Like, I don't care if if, uh, what people do in their private lives. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, Tim, um, you know, same thing there. The the source was uh, one that I'm not even familiar with. Um, like I said, now I will say this, she is married, and, and Mr. Gnome um, may care a little more 
Um, so there's a little bit of a breach of trust there, which I guess everybody could take some issue with. Well, we don't know um, that. We don't know that. So we you're saying that, that he would have endorsed trust. it? He could have. We don't know. That's possible. Uh, we Possible. You know, um, odds are not likely, but possible. Anything's possible. Um, okay, um, Tim, your thoughts on uh, the report? Well, she, for her part, said the rumors of the affair were, quote, total garbage and, quote, uh, disgusting lies. Uh, Pedro Gonzalez was the name of the writer who wrote the article detailing the affair, and he said he stands behind his reporting 100%. He said his sources are very good in this matter. Um Again, I I don't know, and and I'm kind of with Catherine on one thing. Normally, I don't care about this sort of thing, except when one group of people continually beats the other side, somebody on the other side up about this thing, and then they turn around and do the same thing themselves. Now, there's a word for that. It's called a hypocrite, and she may or may not have done it. I don't know. But but if she did do it, then she would be hypocritic to say anything, you know, or, or anything. But if she didn't do it, then, you know, she, she, she did do it. And I hope she didn't. She has a husband. She has four children and a couple of whom are grown. And, you know, I hope it didn't happen. Her aides, by the way, for a long time, have been trying to get her to sever any ties with Corey Lewandowski because the guy's just uh, he's a pretty low-life individual. You know, we've, we've talked about him a lot on this show. And, and, and a lot of the people that work with her just, even though she is a, a big supporter of Trump, did not see why she had to be hanging around with him. Um it does seem like something of a coincidence that she chooses this particular time to sever ties. But on the other hand, maybe it is just a coincidence and she saw the light and saw that she needed to do this. I'm more concerned, by the way, David, about that other story where she tried to fix something for a family member and use the weight of her office to do it than I am about the rumors of this affair. But that's well, and just that's, me. I agree. And that's the reason I put I it in that order. Because once she abused her office, once she potentially abused the trust of her husband, we don't know the, you know as much about the second one as far as that goes. But we know she abused the, the trust of her husband. Now, this is what I, I was kind of building up to in that she cannot run to for office again. In that report by Pedro Gonzalez, he talked about her being on a very short list with her and Tim Scott um, as Donald Trump's potential 2024 running mate. Obviously, she just added two big chapters in the um, opposition research book this week, um, you know, that, that will have to be discussed. And if you're looking for a vice president, what's the old rule? Do no harm. Well, these incidents are definitely not do no harm. Uh, particularly for a vice president. So that's where I think it comes in. Now, should Donald Trump not run? 
I think Christy Nome may have had designs on running, along with a host of other folks. But this would not be probably the best, you know, two items to pull right out in. Um, so that's where these stories matter. Also, I'll say this, the fact that it was a conservative publication in that second story probably makes you wonder more in a, in a way where it gives, I guess, not credibility, but just like they wouldn't want to tear down a conservative stalwart like Christy Nome unless they had, you know, some, you know, smoke, if you will, there. Um, Catherine, what do you think the two stories, one more than the other, does to her, you know, national prospects? Oh, I don't think uh, – uh, that's a good question. I think because she's a woman – the fact that she may have had an affair is worse for a woman than it is for a man. Um, but that's, you know, a couple of years away. And uh, I think, I think she could probably weather it. Depending on who the other prospects are, I guess. It's well, all I'm a matter of, comparison at that point. Yeah, I, and for what we know, it's likely that she would be the VP pick um, than run for president because Donald Trump's telling everybody he can, he's running. Um, Tim, your thoughts on how this hurts her long-term national prospects? Well, in, in a normal world, it would. You know, you talked about historically when you pick vice presidents, you want to pick someone who does no harm. That's not the first considerate, uh, consideration in Donald Trump's world. The first thing he wants is someone who will be totally loyal to him, and he will point to Mike Pence and say, there is someone who was not totally loyal to me, and it probably cost me a second term. Now, that's Trump's thinking, of course. He's going to want somebody who is absolutely totally loyal to him. She checks that box. So I don't think these things would hurt her uh, badly unless she gets in some legal trouble, especially with the first story. Now, that would yeah. hurt her. But the, the, the rumors of an affair and all that, no, 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 no. There wasn't none of that. Trump, Trump don't even think in those terms. His first thought is, is this person going to be my guy or gal? That, that's, that's the first consideration Donald Trump has, and I, for that reason, I believe she's still uh, on a short list. Yeah, the second one might actually help her uh, with Donald Trump knowing his <laughs> thinking. Um, I ain't touching <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I tell you, and this is a state that's just had a lot of issues with um, ethical issues. Their their attorney general, I, I can't remember if we've discussed it or not, how he um, he was caught uh, or he was speeding so many times and he uh, committed vehicular homicide, was convicted. We, we talked. We talk. and, and now he's been caught with another speeding ticket. Really, I don't know why he even had his driver's license, um, but he... he you know, high-speed speeding ticket, um, and so they're talking about, you know, removing him from office uh, for behavior that really should be. Um, 
And so now with this issue with the governor, um, you know, North that some of those things as they all snowball North. Uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying the wrong state. South Dakota may want to look at itself and say, are we getting good government? Not left government, right government, conservative government, liberal government. Are we getting good government? Are we giving people that, you know, live up to the public trust? And I think the two things, even though they're two totally different people, may kind of hurt each other because there's a synergy there of negativity. Um, well, let's real quickly get into something else, um, the infrastructure bill and where it stands. Tim, give us a synopsis. Well, you know, there there were two bills. Uh, one is the physical infrastructure bill on roads, bridges, la-di-da-di-da. And the other one is, I guess, best described as a social infrastructure bill uh, with stuff about global warming in it and, uh, you know, aid to to families and, and those sort of items. Um that will cost a whole lot more. Probably uh, the price tag listed right now is three and a half trillion dollars, although that's negotiable. While the um, the fiscal infrastructure bill is between one and one point five trillion. Now the fiscal infrastructure bill has already passed the Senate, and. Uh, we now have two holdups. There cannot be a vote on the social infrastructure bill in the Senate because uh, two senators, Manchin and Cinema, are, are holdouts. Manchin won't say much, much smaller bill. He, he gave a figure, 1.5 trillion, which is not really realistic, but it's a starting point for negotiations. And the problem with with uh, Kirsten Cinema is she basically has said nothing. She has not told them what she wants, and she's just sitting there, you know, refusing to do or say anything. So that bill stuck over in the House. Uh, a group of progressives, um, over half of the 96-member caucus of progressives, have have stated that there will be no vote on anything until both bills uh, can be voted on at the same time and without a vote in the Senate on the social infrastructure bill, of course, they cannot do that. So we're stuck. You wish that the House would just go ahead and bite the bullet and pass the physical infrastructure bill because, as we discussed before, you know, uh, we came online tonight. The president and the Democrats really, really need a win here, something they can take to the voters and say, look at what you are physically seeing out there being done for you. And right now they just don't have that, guys, so we're just we're just stuck in place. We're waiting. Uh, even Speaker Pelosi can't seem to shake them loose, and, and there's not a better person in the U.S. Congress to go to than her to get things like that done. But so far, she hasn't been able to do it. So there we are. Yes. Uh, Catherine, uh, what's your take on the stalemate thus far? I just, it just is so frustrating. Um, 
that we can't just can't get anything done. It's very frustrating for me. Um, I agree with Tim. I wish we could just pass the one that's been through the Senate, revisit the other stuff once that's passed. Um, I know that, you know, I'm a, I'm, I consider myself a progressive and I like a lot of the things that are in the alternative bill. And I, I think they're important and should be considered, but, we need to get, we need to do something. We we can't. It's so frustrating and hurtful for the people that really need some of, that need jobs and need need this infrastructure bill. Um, you know we have bridges and and roads that need repair and I just I think we just really need to. I w- really wish they could just pass it. Yes. Well, I want to switch gears on us and uh, welcome back into the Kudzu Vine for at least the third or fourth time, Mr. Evan Scrimshaw. Welcome, Evan. Thanks for having me. This is my fourth appearance, I believe. Excellent. I knew we were getting up there. Well, Evan, right off the bat, before we get into any actual elections, um, tell us, um, where are you writing at? Like, if we want to read your work, uh, where's some places that they can... um, you know, read that. Uh, I have a Substack, Scrimshaw Unscripted uh, Substack dot com, where I write a few times a week, um, daily when events are happening, less frequently when we're in a lull. Uh, and I write a weekly political betting column for the Lines um, every Monday. You know, most weeks it's Monday, um, where I've been giving out some 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 winning political bets. So if you are the kind of person who likes to put down a Put down a little bit of money. I uh, read the read, read the columns over at the lines, but those are my sort of two homes at this point. Excellent. So those are new places, I think, from the last time we had you. So I wanted to make sure we kept up with you. Well, Evan, it makes sense to first let you go home and and talk about you know elections in your home country. Then we'll let you fly across to Europe with Catherine. Then we're going to come back to me and talk about some American elections. So I'm going to swing it right off to Tim to discuss Canada with you. Tim? Good evening, Evan. Thank you for being on with us tonight. Love being on the show. Uh, Let's do this. Um, many experts had had stated that voters were angered at even having this snap election during a pandemic with what they saw as no compelling reason or strong issue to even do so. Were, were the voters that angry ab- about having this election? And if they were, were they correct in having this anger? I mean, I never want to say the voters are wrong. So there was some voter anger, but I want to call uh-huh. it anger. It was sort of frustration, irritation. Um, uh-huh. But the thing is, the previous election had been two years away. Generally speaking, uh-huh. Canadian minority parliaments don't last two years, and the ones that do don't tend to last much longer than two years. And any sort of the irritation or frustration that existed went away pretty clearly because the liberals didn't do really worse than you would have expected. Like, they did worse than the polls had them in July, but they didn't really do that much worse than you would expect given sort of the underlying fundamentals. I kind of think the election was required. We're coming out of COVID. 
the mm -hmm. liberal government had to spend a load of money to prop up people, to help out, to keep businesses afloat. And there is a, a sort of real conversation about what does a post-pandemic, you know, build back, for lack of a better way of putting it, looks like. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for the Canadian people to, had they wanted to elect a conservative government, I think it would have been perfectly legitimate for the Canadian people to have voiced their displeasure with the way Justin Trudeau had handled the pandemic, because he was like the, the the Canada that we elected Justin Trudeau to govern flew out the window six months later. The world we elected him to govern in went out went out the window six months later, and it is reasonable to ask whether or not we want him to be the guy to build us, you know, to, to bring us back from this from this you know cataclysmic global event. Well. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's liberals did win a third straight mandate, even though they actually nationally trail the conservatives in the popular vote. So for the benefit of our listeners that are not familiar with Canada, how exactly did the liberals manage a win uh, keeping the prime minister in power? At the 2019 Canadian election, the Liberals won 157 seats, and they did uh -huh. that by winning basically uh, all but one seat on the island of Montreal and every seat in the northern suburbs. Uh -huh. um, they won almost every seat west of Toronto in the in the gold, Golden Horseshoe, as it's called, um, with a couple of losses in Hamilton and one loss in two losses in Niagara. And they did really well in Ottawa, and they did decent enough in Vancouver and went well in Atlantic Canada. What happened this time was the Liberals lost a few seats in Atlantic Canada. Well, I think lost one seat in Quebec. But they held all of their seats, all of those seats in the band of seats sort of north and north and, uh, and west of Toronto. They held all those seats against the mm -hmm. Conservatives, and that's where all the people are. And so the Conservatives – to win in Canada, you have to you have to win a breakthrough in the in the suburbs. And the Tories went backwards in the in the in the Toronto suburbs, and that's why they lost. That's why the Liberals won again. Mm -hmm. Now, with such a close election, is there any fear in Canada that the type of polarization that you see here in the United States? between our parties could also happen there? So I'm going to dispute that the election was particularly close because it really wasn't. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, the popular vote's close, but that's because the Conservatives win 70-80% of the vote in western, in rural Western Canada, and you know, mm -hmm. those voters are going to continue to be annoyed with Justin Trudeau, and that's kind of their right. Um, there are, like, some concerns about what the like what the I'm gonna call them the far right are sort of doing, but the thing is the the far right are fortunately sort of cordoned off in their own political party. They have not had any success in sort of infiltrating our main right wing party, and so you're not seeing mm -hmm. you know uh, you're you're not seeing them led by the sort of main conservative alternative. They're on their own in their sort of cordoned off section and they're angry and there's a lot of anger, but it's not, there's no real sense that there's going to be this widespread sort of, you know, Trumpian takeover of the, of the main conservative party. 
or mm-hmm. that any such takeover would lead to any electoral success. Mm-hmm. Now, you have the People's Party now. It's been in existence, I believe, for three years, and it was a former conservative who started that party. And they have expanded their vote share now to about 5%. Um, are they doing that at the expense of the conservatives, or are they gaining popularity in some other way? Um so it's funny. I actually, I, I told the story before, but the day the People's Party was founded, I actually was in hospital for a dislocated kneecap in Kingston, Ontario, oh. uh, but two hours away from where I live. And I found out that the People's Party had been founded uh, sitting in the waiting room, waiting for my, uh, waiting for my father to pick me up. <laughs> um, but no, the, the PPC are sort of a, and I, I wrote a, I wrote a piece for my Substack about them, which I, I you know, I, I hate to be self-promotional, but like, I think it's one of the better things I've ever written is that uh-huh. the PPC appeals to people who think the world is turning away from them, right? There's a, the world that, you know, I have grown up with. And I, you know, I said, as, as, you know, as a gay man, it's sort of the best example, right? It's not like the world that 20 years ago, people like me lived in, is completely different from the world we live in now. And there is some number of people who don't like that that's the world that we live in now. They don't like the fact that they don't understand the world anymore. They are the world that they thought they understood doesn't exist. It's some ex-conservative. It is some ex-liberals, sort of older, working-class, economic, you know, left-wingers who are sort of pulled towards the who, – who sort of are more socially conservative, maybe pro-life liberals who sort of hung on with the party. And then the third thing is – it's ex-Greens and ex-New Democrats who are just kind of – who voted Green or New Democrat as a sort of up-the-system up the vote, um, uh-huh. which, you know, is that sort of the, the third thing because I, a lot of voters are not nearly as ideological as we think. And despite the fact that the BBC are – you know, I'm going to call them a far-right party, and I'm totally fine doing that. You know, voters can look huh. for protest votes in an – in an ideologically counterintuitive way. Hmm. So one more question, then I'm going to throw it over to Catherine uh, for another subject. But this year you had more than a million mail-in ballots issued. Now, in the United States, you you know, we had a huge mail-in vote in the 2020 and most of those mail-in voters tended to be more liberal democratic voters so is there anything known about the particular ideology of the mail-in voters in canada this year so they were more liberal than the electorate at large but not nearly Uh to the extent that they were in the u.s last year for uh-huh. two main reasons. One, um, the main conserv- the conservative party did not spend three months calling mail-in, mail-in votes, you know, potential fraud. Um, and the second reason is you guys had to have that election and even the George Ross when there was really no available vaccination, right? right. You know, even in, right. even in the George Ross, you know, vaccination rates would have been, what, 1%, 2% nationally, if that, right? Yeah. Whereas now, you know, 
you know, probably something like 75, 80% of the electorate would have had at least one dose by the time they voted, right? Um, mm-hmm. Most of them would have been fully vaxxed. And there's just like a, there's, there's certainly a more, the notion that like, oh, there's a pandemic going on, like it's real and we're still taking it seriously. But we're not, there was like an active fear that, oh God, if I go vote in person, I might catch COVID, which is a, which is a substantially reduced risk here. So sort of suburban, high information voters, the people who are sort of, who would have been the most scared of, of getting COVID last time and therefore wanted to vote early, um, they were less scared of just voting on the day. All right. I appreciate all of that good information on the Canadian election, Evan. I know a lot more now than I did five minutes ago when we started talking about it, and I appreciate it, sir. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, Evan. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, Glad to be here. I'm going to ask you... I'm going to ask you about Germany, and I warn you that I don't know very much about their political system, but the little bit that I've read in the last few days um, is like reading something completely different than what I'm used to. <laughs> um, and and I think the most compelling difference is this idea of coalitions. And I mean, I'm just, I just think, wouldn't it be great if, we could have coalitions in this country and wouldn't that make things, wouldn't that make it possible for us to actually get more done? And am I correct in thinking that or am I just dreaming? I think some of, so I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of of proportional representation and I'm a fan of a better and different voting system. The, the thing that you end up, the, the two advantages of, PR is basically you tend to push the extremes out of the main parties, which yes, you end up with, you know, a far left and a far right party, but they are on the fringes. And what you end up getting is you end up tend to get more sort of cooperative government of the, of the center generally. But the big thing is that like the greens, like the German greens and the German uh, social democratic party are basically two different like, they're, they're, like, the Democratic Party is sort of an informal coalition of these two parties. But the thing is, is that because they're running as one joint party in the U.S., all of the, like, all of the policy difference is dealt with by Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin in a Senate cloakroom, and we're trying to figure this stuff out for weeks and months, and we have no idea what anybody actually stands for, what anybody actually believes, what anybody's red lines actually are, whereas – if you have a PR system, if you have multiple parties and you have then coalition negotiations, things take more time at the front end, but you end up getting agreement on what you're going to do moving forward in a way that's much more coherent and much more stable. It's much better in terms of giving financial markets and the general populace sort of a sense of knowing what's going to happen, a sense of stability. And also, and this is my sort of, um, you know, bigger, bigger sort of desire here is, you know, they're like AOC and Joe Manchin represent two very different ideologies, right? So do, you know, John Catco and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And the American system sort of forcing them into one party each is not healthy for the free exchange of ideas. And you end up making sort of like interesting policy debates 
Democrats in disarray when, like, no, we should know what AOC thinks and what Joe Manchin thinks, and we should be able to have a sort of more mature debate about these issues than the Beltway media makes it, and PR makes that sort of Beltway media focus less useful. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I also think that it makes elections a little bit different because, and this is just my observing it over, you know, just anecdotally, it seems like there's less chance of really uh, negative campaigning because you're all going to be dependent on each other at some point. Um in terms of in terms of voters and negotiations, so I, yeah, I, I may be wrong about that. I may be like I said, I may, it may be a fantasy I have. But so and, no, so no, because the thing, aside, because the thing, the thing, the thing we end up the thing we end up seeing a lot is a voters are much more likely to change from a center right alternative to a center left alternative, or from a center left alternative to a, a sort of more green alternative, because the differences tend to be sort of papered over as opposed to accentuated. And the other thing is sometimes you need different parties to get different things done, right? There will be issues where the German left, the German, uh, the social Democrats, there will be issues where them and the Greens disagree or them and the free Democrats who are most likely the, the third partner in that government. There will be issues where they disagree but the, the the ability to go get votes on X or Y policy from the center right party means that you can't really be too much of you you, you can't really be too uh, mean <laughs> in the campaign right. about this political party. You can't make up sort of outrageous lies. You can't sort of demean them constantly because you might need their votes on EU policy, trade policy, whatever it might be. So, what do you think is going to happen? Um... I think it's still up in the air, right? What's happening in Germany? Do you have any sense of how it's going to get all worked through or has it been, I, I mean, I, like I said, I'm not that up to speed on all of it, but. Negotiations, is negotiations are ongoing and the negotiations are going to take a while just because you have to hammer out what three, three political parties are in cabinet ministries. They have to negotiate what those are going to be. They have to negotiate uh, a sort of collective policy, and this negotiation is going to take some time. But the the Social Democrats won the most seats, won the most votes, yeah. and it would be it would it would be technically legal, but the Greens and the Greens would never agree. So there are basically two options for government at this point: uh, center left, Green, uh, Free Democrats, and Free Democrats are a centrist party, and then it's center right, Greens, Free Democrats. And there's no way the Greens would rather go with the social Democrat, with the center right who came in second, than the center left who came in first. So it's going to be they're referred to as a traffic light coalition just because those are the party colors. Right. But it's going to be yeah, it's going to be the it's going to be the it's going to be the the social democratic party, the SPD. It's going to be the Greens. It's going to be the Free Democrats. And that's going to be it's going to take some it's going to take some time. They're going to hammer a, a working agreement and. That's going to be how the that's going to be the next term of government for the next four years. Well, that, I, I think um, I think we could learn something from that process, um, but we won't probably. <laughs> we, I mean, Americans. 
Um, that's all I yeah. got. I'm going to pass it back to David to ask you about America. Yes, um, Evan, there's just been so many good things that you've written and discussed. We want to get into some of those. And the first one was more conversation being had on Twitter. I, I don't think you started it and other people chimed in. I chimed in with something. You responded on the state of Ohio, and um, there's kind of two parts to this. I've had a sneaking feeling that Josh Mandel would be the nominee, that he would edge out um, the more establishment candidate who had been the party chair, uh, J.D. Vance, the author, and I guess – biography movie maker um in the end and, and apparently you agree tell me why josh mandel is a known conservative quantity and generally speaking those people win right tim Kinn was sort of the former party chair was sort of supposed to be the establishment conservative in the race and then she disowned uh, John Kasich because John Kasich became a never Trump Republican and voted for Joe Biden and endorsed Joe Biden. So Timken is sort of in this weird place where she's the candidate for nobody. She's kind of sort of the establishment candidate, but not really because she disavowed Kasich. And then she's kind of sort of a conservative, but not really because she's still the establishment candidate. J.D. Vance is like a candidate of like He's the guy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, which then became the movie, which did nothing at the Oscars. Um, I never saw it. I've never read the book, so I'm not really taking it that seriously. But, like, the thing about J.D. Vance is J.D. Vance is the kind of – J.D. Vance is a candidate who appeals to, like, D.C. insiders who think they understand the rural Rust Belt, but they don't actually understand the Rust Belt or the voters in them. And there's no real reason to think J.D. Vance has any electoral appeal. He's polling at like 7% or some piddling number. He's, in, he's clearly in third in the polls. And Mandel's a state, like a former statewide elected. He's won the Republican primaries before. You know, he was, he, you know, was going to be the Republican nominee for this, for the other Senate seat in 2018 before he withdrew. Like, there's no reason to think Mandel's in particular amount of trouble. And he's also, yeah, I think, I think, I think it's Twitter by literally leads with the fact that he was the first. I can't remember if he was the first Ohio Republican elected to do it or statewide elected, but, like, you know, he's been on the Trump train since the beginning, and boy, oh, boy, does he love telling you about that fact. Yes. Um, I'll tell you this. I have read or actually listened to Hillbilly Elegy. I've watched the movie. It was free on Netflix. Um, and both the book and the movie are far superior to G. Vance's campaign thus far. Um, so, of course, that third thing's a pretty bar to um, exceed. But I think Hillbilly Elegy apparently was a book that was very popular with, you know, people that are traditionally Democratic voters that, you know, read and, and, and want to, you know, expand the mind, whereas it wasn't in the Walmart next to Bill O'Reilly and um, Brian Killamead's books, um, whatever, you know, you know, ghost-written book they're writing with. So he really was appealing to the wrong audience with his two, his movie and his book compared to this campaign he's running in the Republican primary. Well, I want to stay on to another portion of this. Now, my feeling is if Josh Mandel is the nominee and 2022 is not just some kind of huge Republican wave election, then that's 
Cameron's best case scenario for winning um, the Senate seat. What do you think his chances will be against Josh Mandel? You've asked me. You asked me about this the last time I was on the show, and I sort of said then that I, I waffle on this question all the time. I'm increasingly pessimistic the Democrats can pull it off, just because Ohio is just Ohio's a really red state. And Mandel's a bad candidate. I'm not going to say he isn't, but there's a universe where Mandel loses by two, loses by three, loses by four. That's a great result for Democrats, right? That's 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 a great result compared to presidential partisanship. I just really find it hard to believe that Mandela is a bad enough candidate to lose given just how much of the vote in Ohio is still in the rural, the red rural areas, as opposed to the three cities. I mean, I could be wrong. I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to be, you know, pessimistic on a Democrat for once and they actually, you know, outperform my expectations and win. But he actually has to win. Tim Ryan actually has to win. Tim Ryan's going to do really well. He's going to outperform. Like he's going to he's going to win by he's going to lose by much less than Joe Biden did and less than Hillary Clinton did. But I I can't see him actually managing to get you know a majority of the vote or you know more votes than Josh Mandel. I really you know he's got like a ten percent chance. I, I don't like saying that. I mean I I think Mandel's a horrible candidate. I think he's you know would be a much worse senator than Rob Portman, who I've always respected for being the first Republican senator to support gay marriage, right? Like Portman is a, is a sort of, you know, one of the last great Republican senators and he's going to be replaced by a fire breathing moron, but he's probably going to be replaced by a fire breathing moron, unfortunately. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I brought that up again. I mean, Tim Ryan, I guess if you, if you look at the blueprint to win back, you know, white working class voters, John uh, seems to be exhibit A of the candidate you would come up with. But let me talk. I want to ask one more question about Ohio because it is so vexing to me. You have what I call major league cities. You have Cleveland, you have Cincinnati, and you have Columbus. A lot of these states that have trended so hard, so fast red, don't have major league cities. In Ohio, you have three of them. How is Ohio not more in play than it is? Because the cities aren't quite big enough, and they're not trending, and they're not trending to, towards Democrats fast enough. And then the rules are turning against us. And I, this is this isn't a criticism of, of Cleveland, but the thing about Cleveland is that like Cleveland's a very black city. And a lot of the reason why, you know, we won Ohio twice was just insane black turnout from Barack Obama running twice. And we're not quite getting the same, we're not quite getting the same level of black support, which means that we're not quite getting the same amount of support we need out of Cleveland. And Columbus and Cincinnati are taking longer than we want to, to move left. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let me uh, move on to another state. And um, in the line, I actually, it was the first chance I got a chance to read it, you tweeted out about your um, column. After Donald Trump, I wouldn't say he endorsed Stacey Abrams. He just strongly unendorsed Brian Kemp in his speech in Perry, Georgia, the other week. You wrote a column uh, talking about the Georgia governor race, governor's race. Give us your thoughts on it. Stacey Abrams is a... Uh... 
clear and obvious favorite to win. Like, she's not going to win by five because it's really hard to win Georgia elections by five, but, like, she's going to win, and she's probably going to avoid a runoff because Kemp won in 2018. So you can you can partially say he won by chicanery with voting machines and polling places, et cetera, et cetera. I don't really want to litigate that again, but, you know, seems seems fishy to me. But even beyond that, he won because he got amazing turnout amongst rural whites. These Trumpian, you know, had never voted before 2016 voters. He got them out again. He did a really, really great job with his, uh, you know, he's the clear conservative or whatever that ad was. You know, he's got a, he's got a chainsaw to rip up red tape. He's got a pickup truck to round up illegals. Like, that was great messaging for those voters. And he still did well enough in – Forsyth and the blood red exurbs north of Atlanta. The problem for Republicans is now that Kemp is basically a dead man walking with Trump world, either the, either the Georgia GOP are going to nominate Kemp again, and he's not going to be able to rely on the same level of turnout in the rural parts of the state, or they're going to nominate Vernon Jones, who will just get destroyed. Like he would literally lose by like 15 points or something. Um, but the thing is, is that Stacey Abrams lost Forsyth last time by 43 points. She's going to probably lose that by 35 this time. And that's, I know it's, you know, like Forsyth was whites only until the nineties, right? Like everyone who's listening to this knows the extremely racist path of Forsyth County. And the thing is, those educated, suburban, well-off white social liberals who've lived in you know, Kopp, Gwinnett, Forsyth, they're trending left, and they're going to keep trending left. And the only way you can counteract that as a Republican is if you get even more rural whites out to the polls. And you're not going to do that because Donald Trump hates you. And so voters who very much like Donald Trump are not going to be your savior when he's basically saying, I mean, Stacey, I mean, Stacey Amherst can't be worse than this guy. Yes. Well, now, let you, I mean, you mentioned Vernon Jones, and I, I agree. Vernon Jones is an um, underdog to defeat Brian Kemp, but his chances aren't zero. Um, what do you think Vernon Jones' best scenario or chance to um, knock off Brian Kemp in the primary would be? The best, chance, the best chance he would have is Donald Trump not only endorsing him, but also – I don't know when you guys are having your your primary in 2022 because I don't because you guys because your primary calendar got all changed with the pandemic and the presidential year so I don't really know what it is for 2022 but it would be Donald Trump doing a rally for him three days out in you know Marjorie Taylor Greene's district in you know Rome Georgia or whatever I don't think it's going to be enough for him though because Kemp is an incumbent. I'm genuinely trying to think of the last time an incumbent got primaried. And it's very rare that incumbent governors successfully get primaried, you know, without like, like huge scandal attached to them. And, you know, while, you know, you and I might think that some of Brian Kemp's um, conduct has been, you know, uh, scandalous, I, I wouldn't necessarily think the average Republican does. And then the other, the other thing sort of making me think that Kemp is going to be fine is, the Republican, like the Republican establishment, all know the basic fact that you and I, and I think everyone who reads this, you know, is listening to this conversation right now, thinks Vernon Jones loses by ten. 
maybe not 10, but like Vernon Jones isn't beating Stacey Abrams. The Republican establishment knows this. The Republican Governors Association knows this fact. And so they will spend ungodly sums of money in that primary to stop Vernon Jones and at least give Georgia Republicans a chance of holding the governorship if they have to. Yes. All right. Excellent synopsis analysis on Georgia. Um, I want to move one state south back in August on um, your blog on Substack. Uh, You wrote an article of Florida and the useless act of rebellion. You basically advocate for giving up on Florida and I guess the short term, maybe not the long term. Uh, Tell us your thoughts on how Democrats should approach Florida. So we're not beating Marco Rubio next year. We're probably not beating Ron DeSantis, and we're not beating Rick Scott in three years. And so there's no Senate seat in 2026. Like, if you're thinking about sort of building a Democratic, if you're thinking about winning the next presidential election and you're thinking about winning a Senate majority, Florida doesn't do you any good, right? Democrats might win Florida in 2024. I highly, highly doubt it, but they might. But Florida will never be the 270 electoral vote next time, right? The, the, the cleanest path forward for Democrats is everything is when everything Hillary Clinton won, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, right? Okay, let's say you lose one of those three. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, boom, those are your next two sets of electoral votes to go get. North Carolina is a better option than, than uh, Florida at this point. And the thing about Florida is, the, the, the useless act of rebellion that I, that I write about at the beginning of that piece is I'm from Montreal. Or sorry, I, I wasn't born in Montreal, but my parents are both Montrealers, and I love the city greatly. And there's a street. It's uh, one of the main two thoroughfares in downtown Montreal on the island. It's um, just one block south of St. Catherine. It's now René Lec Boulevard, named after the first separatist uh, premier that Quebec ever had. This street used to be called Dorchester. <laughs> And every angle of a certain age still calls the street Dorchester. And everyone knows that Dorchester is not the name of the street. And everybody knows that they're never renaming the street Dorchester. But it's an Anglo act of rebellion. And it's a useless act of rebellion. And spending money in Florida trying to reverse the fact that, you know, we lost Florida by an ungodly number of votes and we're not getting it back and we don't need to get it back to win the presidency feels the same way to me. It feels like another useless act of rebellion. But the difference is, is that I know when I call it Dorchester, I know it's a useless act of rebellion. People who advocate for spending in Florida don't. Yeah, hmm. I, I was the one thing I think that would be valuable if you saw the opening to take Ron DeSantis out before he could be the 2024 nominee, because I think he would be a far stronger 2024 nominee than Donald Trump, if you could somehow take him out. And I agree, that's, um, you know, a long shot. Um, That would be the one reason to go after, you know, Florida. I don't, I I don't agree that DeSantis is a particularly strong candidate. DeSantis has a real, like the thing, the thing about DeSantis is he's got, he's, 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 he's as odious as Trump to suburbanites. And, but I don't think he's quite, he's a, he's a pale imitation of Trump to, to Trump world. Like to the average, I voted in 2016, I voted in 2020, I didn't vote in 2018, and I don't generally like the Republican Party. He's a pale imitation of Trump, and I don't think he gets the turnout 
in, say, the Florida Panhandle, Northwest Georgia, uh, you know, take your pick of all these sort of, you know, rust belt areas. I don't think he gets the same same rural white turnout that Trump does, and he's as odious to the suburbs, to well-off, you know, white social liberals as Trump is. So I don't think DeSantis is that great of a candidate. Yeah, see, I think some of those uh, suburban voters that traditionally voted Republican but couldn't stomach Trump might come home with the statistics because he would then, in a general play up his educational background, he would get some of them back. Now, I do agree with you that for some of the low information. Can I, 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 have, to, I have to interrupt you. I have to interrupt you here. Sure. Those people didn't vote for, these people didn't vote for Republicans because of Donald Trump, because if they voted for Republicans, if they voted for Democrats just because of Donald Trump, why are we seeing the exact same trend amongst those kinds of voters in Canada, the UK, Australia, and we even saw it in Germany? Yeah. It's not I about Trump. Listen. It was never about Trump. I, I, I did, well, I know what you're saying, that Trump is a symptom of the, this greater movement. I know what you mean by that. But but I do think that – I just think that the, the, the margins are so close that I, everything worries me. And I'm always seeing scenarios in which everything can fall apart. And I, I just can see the scenario with DeSantis. And so I, I would just rather him not be plausible – in 2024. Um, well, I want to ask you about one more state because we got just a few more minutes. Uh, just in the last uh, week or so, you wrote about Florida, I'm sorry, Florida, Virginia, and their impending uh, uh, statewide races, including governor. Uh, give us your thoughts on Virginia. Democrats will win by eight. It's a blue mm-hmm. state. Terry McAuliffe probably won't do quite as well as Joe Biden did. Biden won it by 10.1 points. McAuliffe will win by eight. What you're seeing, so what you're seeing is, I know, because I know the first thing that was, and everyone will point to is, ah, but the polls are closer. 538's got a three-point lead right now for Terry McAuliffe. Yeah, I don't care. What, what you're seeing systematically with these polls right now is they're overestimating uh, people without college degrees, and they're underestimating degree holders, and they're basically trying to guess the polling miss, right? They're overreacting to the 2020 polling miss when, you know, Biden was going to win by some ungodly amount and he, you know, barely won Pennsylvania or whatever. But in doing that, what they're actually doing is they're creating a new polling miss. Like we saw in California, all the, all, you know, the, the average of polls, I think 16, 17 point Democrat or no lead on recall uh, in, the, in the recall two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. And then uh, Democrats won by, you know, uh, Newsom won by that 25 points, right? Like, we're seeing a political environment that's pretty much unchanged from 2020. We're seeing that across the news. We're seeing that across the Newsom race. We're seeing that everywhere else. McAuliffe hasn't really spent any money yet, but that's ramping up now, whereas Youngkin has been just spending and spending and spending. And the thing we saw a lot in 2020 and 2022, but even more so in 2020, because we did have a couple of governor's races that year. Well, parties could get it close, parties could get, you know, there, uh, there was a governor's race in Montana and Missouri, both had races and, you know, they were you know pretty close. Democrats, you know, looked competitive in both of them. GOP won both pretty easily. It's basically default partisanship came home in the last four weeks of those races. And if Youngkin can only get to a, to, you know, to get to a slight or not even slight lead in some of these polls, you know, if, if, if McCall's still, you know, winning by three, four, five right now, 
depending on the bowl, what you're going to end up getting is you're going to get that lead to go up to six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe even by election day. And that would be perfectly consistent with what we know, which is Sarah McAuliffe's a popular former incumbent governor running for a second non-executive because of because uh, Virginia law. And he'll win by the amounts that, you know, popular non-disastrous Democrats win in Virginia by eight to ten points. Yes. Well, Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show with all the analysis internationally. Um, I want you, again, for you to um, leave the listeners with where they can read you, but also followed a little bit of um, Germany and Canada. What are the two next international uh, nations that we should be on the lookout for really interesting elections between now, say, now and uh, January? So we're in like a bit, we're, we're entering sort of a bit of a, of a dead period, um, at least in terms of elections that I have on my radar. I will say the first half of next year is going to be fascinating, you know, before the, before the midterms really kick into year. We're going to have an Australian federal election. We're going to have an Ontario election in Canada, which, you know, if you, if you really want to see, you know, suburban trends and, and see how that can go, well, Canada, Ontario is going to give you that in space. Trying to think if trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, France! France next next May is going to be interesting, uh, super interesting with uh, Macron trying to run and get run for second term. Marine Le Pen in some trouble right now. That France is going to be the probably the biggest of the of the three. But those are sort of the that's the docket for the beginning of next year. Nothing really super compelling, really scheduled for for the fall right now. Okay. Well, it seems like we should have faced Canada and. Um, Germany is a little better. Well, again, tell our listeners where they can read about these elections and more. Uh, follow me on Twitter at eScrimshaw, E-S-C-R-I-M-S-H-A-W, Scrimshaw, unscripted.substack.com for my general political analysis. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see when I tweet out my columns for thelines.com on political betting every week. And um, if you ever have any column ideas for me, anything you would like me to write about, anything you're interested in, just, you know, give me a follow, drop me a tweet, DM me, you know, I'll answer your question or maybe write about it if it's compelling. So, yeah, just uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. Yes, well, thanks again for coming on, Evan. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Evan. Yes, that was Evan Scrimshaw um, of his own Substack and um, social media and the line. Um, good to have Evan on, and hopefully, can continue to have him on periodically, particularly before these next French elections. Uh, next week, we're excited to have author Tuesday Night Massacre Mark Johnson. He'll be calling in from Idaho, so we're definitely going to discuss his book. Maybe get into a little Idaho politics, which will be another new state for the Kudzu Vine. Uh, but until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, Good night y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. with a strong and... With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.